0: Four. <coughs> my latest son is sinking
1: fast, my race is near.
0: So does it go, uh, it
1: goes, the, it goes the top first
0: and then back up the second underneath. Yeah. I, I was trying to figure out which one's the same first, So it's, it's, I've seen the lightning flashing, I've heard the thunder roll, i felt sin's breakers dashing. Trying to compromise come on. all, soul. Then you go back up. I've heard yeah, the blessing. It okay. It's the first verses yeah. and Then you go back I, second okay. line. Okay. All right. Yes. Tell you what. Let's use this as our open number this morning. We're willing to we do our best to try to lead it. Well, you can pick it up. Oh, that's all right. So right. This is as good as any. I'm not a good song leader on any song, so I can, I can do bad on this one just like I can do bad on any of them. Uh, it's good to see you this morning. Um, glad to have everybody with us today. I certainly pray that you would uh, pray for me as uh, try to bring something for uh, the Lord today. Lord, allow me to speak the things that are right and good and to together. Please do remember all these that we mentioned this morning, uh, especially those here today. That's the congregation So the 195.
1: <clears throat> <coughs> <coughs> I've seen the lightning flashing and heard the thunder roll. I've felt since breakers' Trying to conquer my soul, I've heard the voice of Jesus.
0: Of the Spirit, Lord, that we may preach Jesus. Lord, just forgive us when we do wrong, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <laughs> well, I've got a few different things on my mind this morning, uh, several different scriptures, anyway. been preaching the last several weeks, or as I've had opportunity to preach, I missed a couple of weeks, um, but I've been preaching just through the what we call the TULIP the Doctrine. It is our, uh, uh, it is an, an acronym we use to describe the major points of what we call the Doctrines of Grace. Uh, we can use the acronym TULIP to help us remember what they are. Uh, the T is for total depravity. The U is for unconditional election. Uh, last time I preached, we spoke on limited atonement and what that means. And this morning, if, if I can, I'm going to try to to speak on uh, the I in that acronym. And it is irresistible grace. Now, what is? What is irresistible grace? Um, it basically boils down to, uh, you know, how, how are we, how is uh, salvation applied to individuals in a vital sense? Um, for example, uh, this is probably a poor example. But after a baby is born, oftentimes the doctor would, you know, you would give them that smack on the rear so that their lungs would clear and they would start uh, crying. Okay? That's that first vital contact when the the, the baby is out of the womb and uh, that first feeling of being alive, okay? He's been in this sort of state of uh, darkness for nine months and all of a sudden he's thrust out and he realizes that he's in the world. Well that's kind of how this this part of the doctrine of salvation is it is our, our, uh, it is what we might call the vital phase of salvation, it's where, it's where we begin to realize who we are and what we are and where we are, um, the real question about it, and, and that's why we use the term irresistible grace, the real question, and it's the question that, you know, you might have a discussion with somebody, is how salvation is actually applied. How does it get put upon us? Now, pretty much everybody that is a Christian uh, that is in some form of Christian denomination, that, I mean that they use uh, the Bible, the, the Holy Bible, the Christian Bible as their text, they, they will all agree with you when you say salvation is by grace. They'll all agree. They will all agree. Uh, the first text I have is... Found in Ephesians chapter two, and I just I want to read a couple little things in there. Um, well, we'll just start at the beginning and get a running start into this this text. If you hath he quickened who were dead and trespasses in trespasses and sins. Now that quickening is the application of spiritual life. That's when you get smacked on your spiritual rear end. And you wake up to who you are, and where you are, and what you are. And you have you quick as were dead in trespasses and sins, where in time past you walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others, but God. Who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace are you saved? The Apostle Paul right there adds that little parenthetical to the bottom of that verse to let us know that it is by grace that this was applied. Now, what what do we mean when we want when we say salvation is by grace? Well, we am going to finish this little section of scripture here, he goes on, he says, And hath raised us. And you'll notice the language. And part of the reason why we believe what we believe about how this grace is applied is because of the language we see in the text. Okay? If you'll notice, there is no, the language used here is active language to us, and we are passive in it. We are totally passive in uh, in what it is we have in, in what we're doing. We're passive. I'll just put it like that. And He hath raised us up together. In other words, He didn't uh, say He didn't holler down and say, "Hey, can you get up?" But hath raised us up together and made us made us sit in heavenly places. Again, notice He didn't ask us, but He made us sit there. He placed us. In that position, raised us up together, made us set in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Jesus Christ. For by grace are you saved, through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So that is. In a nutshell, what we believe about how this grace that we're saved by, how this grace is applied. Now, a lot of people will say, will talk about this concept of of how, another term we might use for this is regeneration. The point of regeneration, the time we are born again. So, there are several, uh, several ways we might phrase that. We believe that it is by irresistible grace that that happens to us. Another way you might put that would be uh, effectual calling. There is a call made, and we use the term effectual. Now, again, the terms are not really that important. Uh, uh, irresistible <laughs> grace or effectual calling. or Those terms aren't necessarily that important, but the, what we want to convey is, what that means for us as God's children, how that works—you uh, know—a lot of people just aren't even interested in salvation and how it works. But then again, a lot of people are. I mean, these days, uh, for some reason, and it's—it's it's getting more and more uh, people are more and more apathetic these days about uh, about God and the things of God. You know, our numbers have shrank over the years, but it's not just our numbers. If you look around, and I I say this because, you know, it's the truth. If you look around, everybody's parking lots are less full than they used to be. Uh, I think that is a sign of the times. That is just a sign of where we are in this current dispensation. We are nearer to the end than we ever have been. How much distance is still left between here and the the return of our Lord? We don't have any idea, but but the scripture does tell us that as, as uh, as this winds down, evil men and seducers will wax worse and worse. Things are, people will be worse. People will be less and less interested in God and the things of God. Not that there are fewer people, fewer Christians. Okay? Not that there are fewer people that have been called by this irresistible grace. I don't think that's the case. I think fewer people are just interested. So that's kind of, uh, when we think about that, that's part, that's the difference in how, what we believe versus what most of the world believes today. We are we are definitely in the minority in what we believe about how grace is applied. Um, back in the, I think it was in the 1830s. I want to I want to say 1830s. There was a. I don't know if y'all know this or not. If you, uh, if you ever, a lot of most primitive Baptists have. Looked at history and read history as far as our own history. In Fulton, Kentucky, back in the early 1800s, there was a a big meeting there, and uh, 1832, I think. There was a big meeting there amongst the Baptists of the day. And of that, at that time, the vast majority of those Baptists were what we would call today primitive Baptists. Uh, back then, they were regular Baptists or uh, just Baptists. They, they were not Protestants. They didn't come out of the Catholic Church. They didn't have. They didn't break away from that. They weren't obviously weren't Catholics. Um, and, and so back then, that's basically the only two arms of uh, of, of Christendom in America. Uh, evangelical. The idea of evangelicals wasn't even a wasn't even a concept. So it wasn't something that people thought of. So all of these various, what they call today, these evangelical denominations. And if you'll look out through into them, you'll see that the vast majority of them broke off the Baptists. So they're not Protestants either. They came off, I guess they are kind of Protestants. They protested against what we as Baptists taught. But there was a debate about this subject, about how is grace applied? And there basically ended up being two camps. The one camp they called the means baptist, and the other camp they called the anti-means baptist. Now we are in that camp, the camp that we call anti-means baptist. We are, we believe that grace is applied without any means whatsoever. Any, what do I mean by means? Oh. Uh, So if you look out at all of the other denominations, we'll take Catholicism, for example, it's one of the largest, still is one of the largest groups of uh, Christian believers on the planet, Um, they have a lot of various means by which you come to salvation. Uh, They have all of the various sacraments, They uh, they have the infant baptism, uh, they have the, even the sacrament of marriage, is one of them. All of those things that they have, all of the various uh, things that they have, are called means. And those means are, are what are the instruments used to apply salvation to the person. So when they say you're saved by grace, that means the grace of the Eucharist, or the grace of <laughs> marriage, or the grace of baptism. All of those things are various graces that they would say are used in order to make a person a child of God, vital in order to get them born again. Our uh, I don't see any Church of Christ folks here today, so I'm going to go ahead and talk about their view on it. They're one of those branches that broke, that ultimately came out of the Baptist. They. Uh, uh, my history is correct. They, uh, initially, there was a group that broke off, and they're called... Uh, what are they called now? I can't remember. I can't remember the name of that group that broke off. The, anyway, regardless, the Church of Christ came out of the group that came out of the Baptists. Their means of salvation is pretty much exclude. Well, they have several steps to Baptist. To, to salvation, one is baptism. That, that you have to uh, you have to hear the gospel preached first. You have to have uh you have to you have to have the working of the Holy Spirit, obviously. But you have to be receptive to the Holy Spirit. You have to allow the Spirit of God to work. You know, Suzanne and I were uh, listening to something on Christian radio the other day, and we were talking about that particular term. That's a very That's a a very common modern day thing is that people say that you have to allow the Lord to work or let the Lord do his work. Let, 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 let the Lord do whatever the Lord wants to do. Brothers and sisters, if we had to let the Lord do what the Lord wanted to do, he wouldn't be the Lord. That's, that's very, that idea, that concept of let God work is foreign to scripture. It is completely foreign to Scripture. Scripture doesn't teach us about a God that you have to let work. Uh, we, we, the, you know, the Daniel, the one of my favorite verses about the sovereignty of God is uh, there when Nebuchadnezzar comes back from his uh, his banishment out in the in the the pasture, literally put out to pasture, and he says, uh, but he works his will in the armies of heaven and amongst the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand you're saying to him what do is that you see Nebuchadnezzar didn't have to let him put him out to pasture <laughs> can, can I put you out to pasture God said to Nebuchadnezzar no okay I'll just put my hands in my pockets and walk off you see that's not God God you don't have to let work God works when and where God wants to work that's how God works God is an absolute sovereign. Now, before I get too sidetracked, let me just go, get back to where I started. The, the, our Church of Christ, brethren, they have, you have to have the gospel preached. You have to hear the gospel preached. You have to be seated in the presence of the gospel. That's one of the major means of, of, uh, of relaying this salvation to people. You have to be responsive to the gospel in a positive way. In other words, you have to accept the message that you've heard. You have to believe that you're a sinner. You have to be willing to come forward and confess. You have to be willing. And then finally, their final point is you have to be baptized by a, a duly ordained member or elder I guess it's elder or preacher. I'm not sure how they use that term anymore. I think elders are more like deacons in the in the Church of Christ. They're not really just the preacher. I don't know if they consider the preacher an elder or not. I'm, you know. Okay. So, in, regardless, again, regardless, they um, you have to be baptized, and until you are through that final piece of the means are not born again. We were, in 1832, the group that is now modern-day primitive Baptists were labeled as anti-means Baptists. I, I, don't, I don't know if that's a good term or a, it's just a term. I mean, I, I don't know how I really feel about that being labeled that as an anti-means person. Regardless, it just means that we don't believe that there is any instrumentality used other than God. God is the only instrument used in salvation. And, that, and as, as far as that is concerned, I I think there, there are other people out in the world today that have that same belief, but it's not widespread. I think we're probably the largest... And you know, when you say the Primitive Baptists are the largest denomination that does something, you know that that it's a small number. Okay? We're the biggest group that believes in it. Look around. It's a small number. But this is what we believe. We are vastly outnumbered. We are vastly outside of the popular view on this. But it's it's our view. Um. (laughs) The Apostle Paul, and not—I I was faced with this. Uh, I, it's been a long time ago, but it, when, you know, when I began to look for the truth, and when I began to seek the truth, I used this scripture, um, the Apostle Paul from the Book of Acts in twenty-four, chapter fourteen, verse beginning. He says this: but "This I confess unto thee." That after the way which they call heresy, so worship I the God of my fathers, believing in all the things which are written in the laws and in the prophets, and have hope toward God, which they themselves also allow, that there shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. And herein do I exercise myself, to always, to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. My conscience got to the point to where it wouldn't let me go anywhere else. And I, and I was labeled a heretic, and I was okay with that. I, I thought, well, I'm in good company. I'm in good company with the Apostle Paul. He was a heretic too, or at least labeled one. And I'm fine with that. Well. We are labeled that way because we believe that there is no instrument other than the instrument of God to make salvation applicable to to individuals. Um, So when we say you're saved by grace, that means that God looked down and saw an undeserving, unwilling, Unable candidate for salvation, and you know we go back and we follow on all the previous doctrines that we've discussed. The total depravity, total depravity teaches us that there is nothing we can do in and of ourselves to redeem ourselves. We have nothing good of ourselves to offer. All of our righteousness is as filthy rags. The prophet Isaiah says that's how we stand before God as one who has nothing, absolutely nothing of value to offer. Uh, We know that there is, we believe in uh, unconditional election. There was no condition we had to meet in order to be elect because God didn't ask us if we wanted to be elect. Um, Here in this passage, he says, uh, He hath in this first chapter of the book of Ephesians, he says, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children, Uh, by Jesus Christ unto himself according to his, to the good pleasure of his will. You see it was his good pleasure the good pleasure of his will, his desire that he picked certain individuals to be to live with him forever. Now we understand by the teaching of scripture that that number is a great number which no man can number like the stars of heaven and the sands of the seashore. We understand that that's that it's not me and you and just a few, like most people want us to want to, to mock us about this doctrine of election that we believe in. It's not that. It is a great, a vast number, a vast, but, but it's unconditional. Uh, he says, by his good pleasure, most of the world wants to teach you out there that well, God looked down through the portals of time and he saw all that would choose him and those were the ones he ended up choosing. Brothers and sisters, when God looked down through the portals of time from the very beginning, before there was anybody, he looked down through the portals of time and saw that none would choose him. None. Absolutely none. Uh, Titus 3 and 5, not by the works of righteousness which we have done, but by his grace as he saved us. He made it clear, clear that it wasn't anything that we've done. Uh, for by grace are you saved through faith and that, not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, any he should boast. It is we are saved simply by grace because he wanted wants us to be unconditional. He chose us for that unconditional election. Limited atonement. We understand because of that doctrine that, uh, and I, I don't say, I don't know that I necessarily like the word, the phrase limited atonement. Most people don't understand, most people use that as in a negative context because they say, see, look at that, you're limiting the atonement. yes. We are limiting the atonement. We are limiting it in who that it was for. Jesus Christ came and he died for the elect, for this vast number of people, this great number that no man could number. Jesus Christ died for them and them alone. The world also believes in limited atonement, but they believe in limited effectiveness. They say Jesus Christ died for every single person that ever was Created, Jesus died for all of them and made salvation possible. This is not what Scripture teaches. Scripture does not teach that Jesus made salvation possible. Again, that's that goes back to that just let God mentality. All you got to do is let God, let God be God. That's not that's not the God of the Bible. That's not the God of the Christian Bible. You see, we don't believe in a an atonement that was. A limited in power. We believe in an atonement that was unlimited in power. Then it came that when Jesus Christ came and he offered himself on the cross and he said, it is finished, atonement was made. And he obtained eternal redemption for all the elect. That's what the scripture says. He obtained it. He didn't make it available. He obtained eternal redemption, that we may have salvation. You know what that word may You ever played Mother May I? When you as a kid, did you ever play that game? Mother May I? One person played Mother May I. Okay, so, you know what that means? If you, if the, the, the mother calls out a command and you take a step without getting permission, you got to step back. May I? But what happens when you get permission? You may. You may do it. That's what what Scripture means when it says that we might or may receive salvation. That's what Scripture means. It means that Jesus Christ got permission from God the Father to do what he was told to do. And when he did that, we have it. He didn't didn't have to move back. He moved forward once. For once in the end of the world, had he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He did that. Jesus Christ did that. So, So looking at all these doctrines that we believe, how is it that you could come to, and if you if you think about those doctrines, and, that, and they perceive this, this concept of irresistible grace or effectual calling, it has to be effectual, or it has to be irresistible, or we wouldn't accept it. In the book of Romans, the fifth chapter, um, the Apostle Paul says this. <clears throat> This is absolutely one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. This little section here, one of my absolute favorite. I love the message here. Hope makes not ashamed because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost. I think that's uh, an indication of of how salvation is, how how this grace is applied. How we end up getting this hope? Hope makes not ashamed because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given us unto us, uh, verse 6, 5, and 6, for when we were yet without strength in due time, right when it was time, <laughs> before it was too late, Christ died for all of those people that would have accepted him anyway. That doesn't even make sense. I mean, uh, Paul tells in the book of Galatians, if, if righteousness could have come by the law, Christ died in vain. There would have been no reason for him to have died. If we could have worked our way to salvation, his death would have been pointless. But because we were, it says, he died for the ungodly. You know why he died for the ungodly? To make us God. It's God for scarcely for a righteous man will one die? Yet peradventure for a good man some dare to die. And you, you know, you know what that means. I've gone over that so many times. But it's the truth in life, in reality. You know, we might if you're, you're a bad person, ain't nobody gonna stand up for you. If you're if you're if you're a really good person, somebody might. But God, you see, there's that great conjunction. Just like there in the book of Ephesians in that second chapter, but God, who is rich in mercy for, uh, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us. That's what it says over in Ephesians. But God, here in the eighth verse, commended his love, commendeth. Uh, I, oftentimes I'll use, I'll use the past tense of the word. And that's the wrong word. Okay? That's not the right word. He didn't, it's not commended. He didn't, he didn't, didn't do it in the, it is in the past. Okay? Commended is an old English word. It ends in E-T-H. And almost every time you see a word, it ends in E-T-H. You can replace the E-T-H with I-M-G. That's the modern translation of that word. That means it is something that started in the past, but he's still doing it today. It is continual. But God, commending his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. All of those doctrines lead us to, the, to believe that grace is applied to us apart from any means. We have a picture of that of uh, Let me just share some thoughts with you from the third chapter of John's gospel that that's the teaching that is the most uh, complete teaching on on Regeneration and how regeneration occurs in all of scripture John John shares that with us Uh, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. He was a ruler of the Jews well, the same came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher who comes from God, for no man can do these miracles. And I wonder how he knew that he was a teacher who from God. You know, because that's a spiritual thing. Here's another thing I want to make sure we clearly understand, and this is what, again, here is, this is more so what I was labeled a heretic for. Okay? The world today, there are there are at least a couple of groups in the world today. One is you might confuse with what it is we believe in terms of the application of God's grace. There are inclusivists, and you might think that we would be counted as an inclusivist. And then there are, there are exclusivists. Now, these are fairly modern-day doctrines. These are, these, are, these are sort of modern... Der- Brother Billy Graham, and I've used him before as an example of, of uh, changed mind and changed understanding, he would be what you would consider an inclusivist. Now, an inclusivist is that, are those kind of people that say that God can save people, whether they're Hindus or Buddhists or Muslim. And you might find that extremely surprising but you can get on Google and, and, and Google Billy Graham says that Muslims can be saved and you'll get 1,400 articles on, oh no, Brother Billy Graham's now a heretic because he says Muslims can be saved and not, by, and not becoming Christians. This was before, obviously before he died. And then there's video evidence of him making those statements. Well, Brother Billy Graham in his latter days became an inclusivist, but, but he couldn't get around this idea that religion was somehow involved. So you didn't say pagans. You didn't say, uh, you didn't say people that stayed on the lake all Sunday could be saved. You didn't say people who had no interest in God would be saved. I mean, it's just the point is. These inclusivists still use religion. Somehow it says that, so whatever light they have, kind of like the old uh, brethren, uh, whatever light they have, uh, that's the light they live in. That's what's been revealed unto them. And so they're going to use that. And I, I believe that in a lot of ways, uh, but I, but it's I don't believe it like they do. Religion. Cognitive natural understanding of a concept is only only has to deal with life. It's a time thing. It is it is for living. It is for living. The Seventh Day Adventists—they're a very interesting group of people. Very legalistic in a lot of ways. You know, you got to worship on Saturday because that's you know that's God designed the Sabbath for that. Uh, very early you, Ellen G. White, one of the founders of that particular movement was an inclusivist back in her day. day. Said that people will be saved from all religions because that's how God is. As God can I, I believe it. She used the Romans chapter 2 for that. Uh, Romans chapter 2, uh, 2 and 14. Um, you know what it is, when the Gentiles, uh, who have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law, are the law unto themselves, which shows the work of the law written in their hearts. A a right use of that passage. But the problem is with Ellen, with uh, Brother Graham and many others that are inclusivists, they believe that God used the instrument of religion to do the writing. When, when he clearly states that it, the writing was done in their heart. It was an internal writing, an internal writing. When Nicodemus came to me, be, oh, before I, again, before I lose track of what it is I'm trying to say, you got your inclusivist, you got your exclusivist. The vast majority of of Christian religions today are exclusivist. Well, they say there is only uh, one way of salvation, and we agree with that. Again, there's a point we agree with. There is only one way of salvation. It is through Jesus Christ, they say. Uh, We would totally agree with that. There is only one way of salvation. It is through Jesus Christ. But they mean, when they say that, a cognitive knowledge of him. You have to know it. You have to accept it. For more than anything else, I was labeled a heretic for that specific point. Because I believe God saved people before they knew it. Because that's what Scripture teaches. That's what Scripture teaches. How does God save people before? You see, if we're totally depraved and if. So there's nothing we can do to get ourselves saved, and the Apostle Paul teaches us in First Corinthians, the second chapter, there that as natural men we don't understand or receive spiritual things. How is it? And again, they come up with all of these alternatives, and so you ask them about well, and most of the ex- exclusivists, like uh, John Piper, one of the modern day exclusivists, he's a what you might call a um, he's a Reformed Baptist. Uh, Reformed Baptists are just like those, just like Reformed Presbyterians. They're very heady. They love knowing things. They love having uh, the market quartered on, on good knowledge. Uh, John MacArthur, another one, modern day. He's not really a Baptist. He's he's in between Presbyterians and Baptists. He's his own denomination, I think. There is no salvation apart from the gospel gospel. Preached is what they say. That's that is that's what exclusivists is. There is no salvation. Apart. And then, then they make all these exceptions for some of them make exceptions. They all they all seem to make exceptions for babies. They all do. They almost all make exceptions for babies. And then you've got the big the vast majority of people that make exceptions for people under the age of 12 because 12 is the age that we have found written about a kid about the child Jesus when he was meeting in the temple when his parents had left him there. Remember that story? He, you know I must be about my father's business. He was 12 so that must be the age of accountability so anybody younger than 12 gets to go to heaven just because th- that they haven't made it to the age of accountability yet get a total false doctrine made up got nothing to do with anything except the fact that he was 12 years old when he was there brothers and sisters if babies go to heaven if 12 year olds go to heaven they go to heaven for the same reason you and I go to heaven because Jesus Christ shed his blood for them because he paid the price that they couldn't and wouldn't pay that's that's our means. Uh, back here in the third chapter of John's Gospel, you see uh, Nicodemus, he's come to Jesus and has some questions and uh, he doesn't even seem to ask them. And Jesus begins to answer them. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a the man be born again. You cannot see the kingdom of God. But we use terms like born for that reason. <laughs> because we understand that being born is passive. We're passive in the act of being born. I remember clearly that one morning I come in here and Brother Carly was on the front row and I came in and we started talking. He started laughing about something. I said, well, Brother Carly, what's so funny? He said, well, I heard this man on the radio this morning say so you got to go get yourself born again. He said, I think that's the funniest thing. How are you going to go get yourself born? Did you ever know Carly? you didn't know Carly before. One of the good Oh, uh, you must be born again. Verily, verily, I say to thee, except a man be born of water and of spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God because that which is born of flesh is flesh and he begins to give us these two states that we have. Tith- that's my interpretation of this verse. That which is born of flesh is flesh and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto you, you must be born again. So he tells, so he reveals here in this eighth verse, how salvation is applied vitally to a person. Because until, until this happens, we are, we are uh, the, verse we, the verse we opened with, um, Ephesians 2, and you who were dead in trespasses and sin, Every individual person is in this state at some point in their existence. It might be a very, very short time. It might be while you're still in the womb, because being in the womb does won't hinder the Spirit of God from moving. You see, if you, can, if you can be born again while still in the womb, what means were used? What means were used? Most everybody believes that a child can be born again in the womb because they use the example of John the Baptist who leapt for joy when he heard the voice of Mary. I believe it. David and uh, Bathsheba had a child out of in, conceived in sin. Uh, David himself confessed that, or Solomon did. Sin was he conce- uh, conceived and shanked in iniquity, lost the child. Just early, early, uh, immediately after the child was born, the child died. The, David's servants were afraid to, to go and tell him because they saw how bad he moped around. And finally, they came and told him, well, the child's dead. So David went and washed off and cleaned up and got fresh and went back to work. They were like, what? What? What are you doing? That's we thought you'd be just devastated to hear that he's dead. David, David just simply said, well, uh, I, I he can't come to me. But I'll go to him. I'll see him later. David was certain of that child's salvation. How? How is he certain of that child's salvation? Because of the because of the the means that were used to apply salvation. See, a lot of people say that we're anti-means. That's the, that's the nickname we got out of that 1832 debate when the Great Split happened, when all of the missionaries went off to be missionaries and we stayed with the, the, the old paths. We were labeled anti-means. But we believe in means. Here's the means we believe in. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is every one, and that is to me that little. Those two words in this verse are so important. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. You know that that is all inclusive. That means every. There's no optional means of salvation for babies. You know that. No optional means. No. No other alternative form of salvation for children who are uh, uh, prior to the age of accountability that they say. They say they're sinless until after the age of accountability. You know that. you know what the, res- the result of sin is? Death. You see, we die because of sin. If those children were sinless, they wouldn't die until after they got 12. We, we wouldn't have any kids dying if they didn't have any sin. They do. What about all of the people in the Old Testament? What means were used for them? I mean, think about it. If you got to hear the gospel and believe the gospel and respond to the gospel and all the other various things, that didn't even exist. There was no gospel. modern day, in modern day terms anyway. So if there's means required, everybody in the Old Testament, at least at least outward means, some kind of gospel preaching or something, uh, nobody in the Old Testament has ever said. But here's the means. Everyone that is born of the Spirit was born by the Spirit coming upon them when it and where it went. You see, there's nothing that can hinder the Spirit of God. You see, that's that's the God we believe in—the one you don't have to let, the one you don't have to allow, because He knows what it is that He wants, and He does what He wants. He goes when and where He wants and grants them this vital relationship with Him, it makes them a new person, makes them a new creature. We use the example uh, often of. Uh, Lazarus, a good example of this, of the demonstration of God's power over, over death. You see, we are in that state of death and sin. We are unable to do anything, and Jesus used the example of Lazarus is given to us to show us how God makes us alive. You notice that in the text there, I'll just read the summary, the end of the text, uh, John 11, 43. He cried in a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus was in this tomb. He was dead. He'd been there three days. Lord, surely he stinketh by now. He's been dead over three days. So we know that he is really dead. And if you're really dead, we know there's nothing we can do, right? Jesus demonstrates his power over death. He cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And when he cried, when he did, there's no no indication that there was any delay between the end of verse 43 and the beginning of verse 44. No indication at all. And he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with great clothes. And I know I've said this a lot of times about how I picture that in my mind about Lazarus just whooshing out of the tomb, because I'm certain he wasn't bouncing. He just came out. He was there standing, because the voice of God commanded him. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. Here's a picture of it. Now this is a physical picture of it, but when Jesus said, all that the Father giveth to me shall come to me, he doesn't mean that outwardly. So whether you're in the womb and when he calls, you come. Come how? Come alive. You come alive. Even if you're uh, on a deserted island and it's just you, and you've never had anything but a pet coconut your whole life. Jesus calls, you come alive right there on that deserted island apart from anything else. If you are 100 years old and you've been mean as a snake your whole life, and God is ready for you to be His, you come alive at that very second, right before you pass off the scene of life. There is nowhere you can go, high or low, to, to hide yourself from God, to escape from God. And when God calls, gets what he wants. My sheep hear my voice and they know me. They, they follow me. That's that's an affectionate call. Oh, There's so much more we can go into with that. We'll close with that. May the Lord bless us to remember these things. This is my prayer.